Welcome to Cabeza de Vaca. Episode 20, All Things to All People. I'm Brandon Seal. At several points in this series, I've lamented the fact that we don't really have any primary accounts about Native American life prior to the arrival of Europeans. But that's not quite true. Scattered across northern Coahuila and southwest Texas are hundreds of caves and rock shelters containing some of the oldest artwork in the Americas, some dating back more than 4,000 years. Many of these murals are located near the old Valverde County community of Shumla, outside of modern-day Del Rio. In 1998, Carolyn Boyd founded the Shumla Archaeological and Research Center to preserve and study this rock art. She began her study of these works as an artist, in fact, not as an archaeologist. She painstakingly redrew each of the panels that she studied, reliving the artistic act of creation with each one. Later, she supplemented her hand drawings with 3D laser mapping, drone mapping, portable X-ray fluorescence, handheld digital microscopes, and more. Over the course of years of study, what she and her team discovered was that the colorful pictographs were more than just the primitive taggings of Stone Age graffiti artists. For one, they were compositions of impressive scale that, quote, span as much as 150 meters long, 15 meters tall, and contain hundreds of figures. Of the 76 murals documented by Shumla Archaeological Research and Education Center, 34 extend greater than 3 meters from the shelter floor and required a ladder or scaffolding to produce, end quote. And by the way, I'm quoting extensively in this episode from Carolyn Boyd's work, the most recent of which is the 2016 book called White Shaman, published by UT Press. Another clue to the panel's significance was in the pigments with which they were painted. To outline their compositions, the artists often used precious red ochre, for example, something which Cabeza de Vaca actually had been a merchant for back when he was trading along the Texas Gulf Coast. Other times, the red pigment was made through a much more laborious method of grinding yellow siltstone and burning it, the fire then imparting a red color to the rock and imbuing life and energy into it. The binder for the paint, more often than not, was made from deer tallow, a nutritionally dense and yet very scarce food for the inhabitants of this region. Which is to say that these drawings represented real sacrifices of time and caloric resources by these people who were living most of the time on the edge of starvation, as we've seen in Cabeza de Vaca's years of privation. But most significantly, what the Shumla research team slowly uncovered was the real compositional complexity in these works. Quote, For example, figures often are portrayed with a series of lines entering or emanating from open mouths. These lines represent sound in the form of speech or song, and they represent breath or a sense of smell, and pay attention to this part, to differentiate between inhalations and exhalations or sound emanating from an open mouth, artists altered the direction of the brushstroke, end quote. That is really subtle and masterful. Furthermore, features of the rock are often incorporated into the murals to create 3D effects. For example, in the way that figures appear out of and disappear into crevices. And some of the caves even seem to have been selected for their unique acoustical effects, concentrating sound from throughout the canyon into one spot. And several of the works, 
seem to exhibit some form of nuanced solar geometry, with the sunlight playing with the narrative displayed on the panel on different days of the year, further bringing the illustrations to life. And I find this part really interesting. In over 99% of the panels studied, the pigments are applied in the same order. First black, then red, then yellow, then white. What this means then is that the people viewing the rock art probably also knew this order, so they could recompose the panel as they looked at it, almost as if the different colors were appearing onto the stage at different times. These weren't just 2D or even 3D images. These were the equivalent of pre-Columbian movies. And in a sense, they may have been even more powerful than that. They were interactive stories. According to Dr. Boyd, quote, the most common form of post-painting modification is incising, which is evidenced by repeated, deliberate, short incisions cut into the imagery. Some figures were rubbed and incised multiple times and in various locations, end quote. So picture, if you will, the viewers of these panels reaching up and touching them, slicing at them with sharp flints as if to draw out their energy in the same way that Cabeza de Vaca describes native medicine men, quote, making a few cuts where the pain is and then sucking the skin around the incision, end quote. Similarly, by interacting with these panels, the viewers of this rock art would have been participating in the story that it tells. And like all great art, it didn't just awe, it instructed. For example, one of the principal motifs running throughout multiple rock art murals is the peyote deer rain motif, as Dr. Boyd calls it. In many of these paintings, little peyote buds fall from the sky like rain and fix themselves to the ends of the antlers of the region's impressive white-tailed deer. And these deer with peyote buds on their antlers show up throughout the rock art in the region. Well, embedded in that association of peyote, deer, and rain, Dr. Boyd realized, is both an empirical observation and an important lesson for hunter-gatherers to learn. Peyote swells after a rain, and becomes more visible, just as deer emerge to nibble on plants which also blossom after a rain. By following where the deer are grazing after it rains then, ancient hunter-gatherers could find their sacred peyote. Dr. Boyd has actually been able to trace many of the motifs of this rock art right down to the present, in the preserved traditions of the Yaqui, Hopi, and Mexica peoples, the latter group of course known more commonly in English as the Aztecs. Interestingly, these Mexicas believed that they had descended into central Mexico from a mythical homeland, somewhere perhaps along the upper Rio Grande, a land that they called Aztlan, which is a really tantalizing cultural memory given the findings of Dr. Boyd up near Del Rio. But even more compelling for our purposes are the reactions of certain of their linguistic cousins, the Huichols, who are still one of the most isolated and unimpacted tribes on the continent. Dr. Boyd, in her writings, describes bringing a modern-day Huichol medicine man to view the white shaman and other murals, and watching him decipher them as simply as if he was reading a newspaper. Quote, These are my grandfathers, grandfathers, grandfathers. They are all here, all my grandfathers, all my ancestors. They are all here, end quote, is what the Huichol medicine man said. And so given these similarities with Yaqui, Hopi, Mexica, and Huichol legends, Dr. Boyd concludes that the people who created these rock art panels must have come from a similar tradition. Even more specifically, she suggests that they probably came from the same language group, 
in this case, the Yuto Aztecan group, to which Yaki, Hopi, Mexica, and Huichol all belong. Which would be really remarkable, wouldn't it? If we could determine what language a pre-literate society spoke based only on their 4,000-year-old paintings. And here's an even cooler clue. I think that Cabeza de Vaca actually gives us evidence in his narrative to back up this claim. Recall that by the late summer of 1535, almost seven years now into their stay on the American continent, Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, Dorantes, and Esteban had turned away from the Gulf Coast and started marching northwest through modern-day Nuevo León and up into northern Coahuila, the land of these rock art murals. That's at least where we think they are anyway. Because around this point in the narrative, Cabeza de Vaca describes a sierra 20 miles long, quote, made up of iron slag, end quote, which sounds a lot like the mountains near Monclova, and a nearby, quote, very pretty, end quote, river, that I think sounds like the Nadadores River, which flows through lovely Cuatro Cienegas and San Buenaventura in the same area. But even more convincing is Professor David Olson from Texas State's argument that the, quote, thin-shelled pine nuts, end quote, that Cabeza de Vaca refers to here are the species Pinus remota, a long-overlooked and fairly localized pine nut found north of Monclova. By the way, Professor Olson is actually a professor of physics and astronomy, not history or biology or anything, but he's a fellow Cabeza de Vaca fanboy, and his next Cabeza de Vaca article, he told me, will attempt to use astronomical clues to date parts of Cabeza de Vaca's journey. And did I mention that Dr. Boyd is also now affiliated with Texas State? Texas State is just all over this Cabeza de Vaca thing, and I recommend you check out their websites for the Whitliffe Collection and the Center for the Study of the Southwest on these topics. Okay, back to Dr. Boyd's theory that it was a Yuto Aztecan-speaking people that created the rock art we've been talking about here. At around this point in Cabeza de Vaca's narrative, just when he's entering northern Coahuila and the land of these paintings, for some reason, he decides to translate two Native American words for us. The only two Native American words, in fact, that he gives us in the entire text. And oddly, he doesn't really give us a context for these words. He just offers them to us in what seems like one of his characteristic anthropological asides. One word is arraca, which he says means come here. And I can't really make much sense of that. But the second word is much more intriguing. Show, he tells us, was these people's word for dog. As soon as I mentioned this to Dr. Boyd, she stopped me. You just told me what language they're speaking, she said. The Mexica word for dog is xolotl, sometimes xolo for short, like the Tijuana soccer team. But even more interestingly, Dr. Boyd continued, in Mexica mythology, it was a dog deity who led the sun into and out of the underworld each night. Is this the role that Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, Dorantes, and Esteban had assumed for their Native American followers? Were their followers calling them show as they guided them through the sierras of northern Coahuila, lighting the way through the darkness of some unknown lands? If you'll bear with me, I'll take this even one step further. The most prevalent motif that Dr. Boyd finds in the rock art of this region is what she calls crenellated arches. The murals are just chock full of quasi-geometric arches, often with a, quote, opening at the center of the arch and a skeletonized anthropomorphic figure located above, below, or behind the arch, end quote. The skeletonized figure represents a shaman, a medicine man who has learned to see himself right down to his core, right through to his own nakedness, as it were. 
And Dr. Boyd argues that the arch represents these people's worldview of, quote, a universe that consists of various layers, with a supernatural realm below the Earth's surface, end quote. That may be, after all, why all these paintings are always found in caves, the portal between the subterranean and the surface world. Quote, they exist in a liminal place between the feminine earthly forces of the rock and the masculine solar forces acting upon it. End quote. Now, think back to episode 15, when Cabeza de Vaca found himself separated from his native band for five nights and had to fend for himself all alone there in the South Texas Monte. To keep warm, each night he would dig himself a hole, cover himself with prairie grass, and surround himself by fires lit from the ashes of a mysterious burning bush. One night, a spark from one of these fires torched his grass blanket, awakening him and sending him leaping out of his hole with his hair on fire, an accident that left him scarred and charred. And then project this story back onto what we were just talking about in these rock art murals. How would a Native American of northern Coahuila have interpreted Cabeza de Vaca's story of his near-death experience in the wilderness? Think about it. A naked, starving, almost skeletonized man sleeping in a hole beneath the ground, almost killed by fire, but instead leaps out of it with his hair aflame, his skin both raw and red and charred and black, holding his firebrands that had kept him alive those previous days, looking like nothing so much as the figures depicted on the rock art on the cover of this episode, with their own black bodies, flaming heads, and hands holding burning sticks. It might also help if I told you that according to Diego Duran's History of the Indies of New Spain, written in 1581, five-day underworld journeys are a classic structure of these tribes' mythologies, which is of course the exact number of days that Cabeza de Vaca says he was alone in the brush. And also adding to this idea of the sacredness of the number five for these peoples, Dr. Boyd tells us that one of the Mexica words for their chief god, the god of fire, was Nayu Tequitli, or something like that, which can be translated as lord of the group of four, with the group itself constituting its own fifth member. Doesn't this start to sound a lot like our four traveling medicine men and the experiences specifically that Cabeza de Vaca has chosen to include in his narrative? Though it might not have meant anything to his European audience, if Cabeza de Vaca and his companions were going around telling these stories in these terms, they very well might have sounded to their Native American audiences like figures from these rock art panels that had suddenly come to life. And by the way, I've spoken to Dr. Boyd about these parallels, and she thinks there's something to it. In her words, quote, How could Cabeza de Vaca not have been impacted by and impact those he spent so much time with? He was a man of faith. Spirituality was part and parcel of his life. And the belief system of the native people at the core shares many parallels with his own faith. His situation was desperate. He was walking the fine line between life and death frequently. In anthropological terms, he was often in a liminal place in which significant transformations take place. I think you could argue that the blending of the two belief systems is what helped him survive. I'm not sure he could have written his narrative without incorporating this into it, end quote. What's really funny to think about is that this hybridization of belief systems is all going on as this tug-of-war is also continuing between these four expeditionaries chasing rumors of agricultural societies up ahead and their dozens of Native American followers who had their own priorities, which unfortunately will probably always remain hidden to us. I like to imagine at this point in the narrative 
that maybe they're trying to pull these four expeditionaries up into their spiritual heartland, this holy land of theirs to which they had been retreating for thousands of years on spiritual journeys to maybe test these four new medicine men. If these were their motives, however, Cabeza de Vaca doesn't record them in his account. All we see at this point is how out of control their group of followers has become again. Their band continued ransacking each new village they came to, though according to Cabeza de Vaca, the natives who were robbed were always consoled by the idea that they could just join up with the merry band themselves and then take whatever they wanted from the next village that they came upon. And a bit counterintuitively, their marauding band actually seemed to be bringing peace to the land. Quote, Throughout this whole land, those who were at war suddenly became friends and came to receive us and bring us everything they had. End quote. Whereas normally, the peoples of the barren Sierra Madre warred with each other continuously for the meager resources of the region, now they just willingly gave up everything they had and peacefully stole it back again from the next village. But eventually, the band had acquired so much stuff that they couldn't even carry it all. So they started just dropping what they didn't want and leaving it behind, their trail through the region now marked by their unwanted loot. In a world of scarcity, it's not hard to understand the attraction that a curious moment like this would have had on a poor hunter-gatherer who had never ranged more than a few dozen miles from his home and whose most valuable possession, perhaps, was a rabbit club. And so the band continued to attract new followers until it reached now into the hundreds. And once again, the expeditionaries felt totally out of control. Quote, the number of our followers became so great that we couldn't control them, end quote. Of course, they didn't have much incentive to stop them either. The ransacking mob had an irresistible Ponzi scheme logic to it that kept the party moving. Of course, they didn't know where they were moving toward, but for the four expeditionaries who had been stuck for so many years along the Texas coast and in the South Texas brush, any movement was welcome. One day, after one of their ritual ransackings here in northern Coahuila, some of the natives came into possession of a cast copper rattle with a face. This was a truly rare find for this part of the world, and they gifted it to Andres Dorantes. It was unlike anything the four expeditionaries had seen since, well, since they had found a golden rattle in the first native village that they found in Florida. Cabeza de Vaca doesn't dwell on the peculiar coincidence of the two rattles bookending their journey up to this point, and actually he uses different words in Spanish for each of them. But also he and his companions were more intrigued by what the worked copper bell suggested, an advanced civilization somewhere nearby. The expeditionaries asked where the rattle had come from, and they learned that it had come from the northwest. They prevailed upon their followers to continue moving northwest, even though now most of their followers were well outside of their own home ranges. But for the four expeditionaries, at least, they were chasing now a pretty overwhelming set of evidence that suggested to them some kind of agricultural society up ahead. And as they kept traveling, they kept running into new villages, larger and larger villages, 50, 100, 200 lodges, again, suggesting a much denser native population than later Spaniards would find when they labeled this region despoblado, or unpopulated. And their party continued to draw new recruits from these villages, reaching now into the thousands. According to the expeditionaries, at its peak, 
their movement numbered three or 4,000 people. All this in a region where the largest community they had yet encountered had maybe a couple hundred living souls in it. It's hard to overstate here how radically life had changed for Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, Durantes, and Esteban in the last 12 or 18 months. Their dizzying rise in status and the speed with which they were now storming across the land was so unexpected and so far from anything that they could have planned that you can understand why they saw the hand of God in it. But as they and their now thousands of followers followed the slope of the Sierra Madre northwest toward the Texas Big Bend region, their movement began to severely strain the landscape. This fear of overtaxing the landscape, like an enormous buffalo herd grazing the grasses down to the roots, pushed them forward. But also, there were more and more encouraging signs pulling them forward as well. Beads, plumage, more gourds. Finally, their scouts started coming back to them with reports of an enormous civilization up ahead. A civilization of 10,000 people, maybe more, who planted crops and lived in stone houses. On the next episode of Cabeza de Vaca. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out the webpage associated with this episode on the RevardReport.com, home of nonprofit journalism for a better San Antonio. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco, sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. The music for this series is entitled Apache. It was composed by Kevin Graham and is available on Soundstripe. A special thanks to Father David Garcia, Dr. Frank De La Teja with the Texas State Historical Association, to Steve Davis, curator of the Whitliffe Collections at Texas State University, to Professor Andres Resendez at the University of California, Davis, to Dr. Carolyn Boyd with the Shumla Archaeological Research and Education Center and also Texas State, and to David Dunham with Texas Monthly for all their support and suggestions. You'll hear more about them throughout the season. And for more information about us and our other projects, you can check out our website at www.brandonseal.com.